2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll continue where we left off. And uh, this is a great ending part of the chapter. As you know, Paul was talking last time and was talking about let us labor that we might be found pleasing to the Lord. And we talked about that. You know, what, how do I do that? Well, we believe. You know, Jesus, what are the works they asked the Lord that we might do them? And he said, this is the work of God. Did you believe on him whom he has sent? We covered that pretty in depth. So, um, but then Paul gets here, and, and then he gets here to verse 10. And he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. If you're taking notes, you need to underline good or bad. Now, in Revelation chapter 20, we see the great white throne judgment. You know, he says, I saw both the great and the small stand before the throne of God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the Lamb's book of life. And they were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Heard a preacher one time, a guy I happen to like, and, but he was wrong on this. And he, he, he said that, you know, God was going to show you all the, you know, because God's keeping a record, you see. This is what he taught. God's keeping a record. And I don't know where he got that from because that's not, you know, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, and he said, listen, think not that I come to judge the world. He said, I came not to judge the world, you know. He, he, did, he didn't. But the very words that I speak, he said, these will judge you in the last days. Well, the very words that Jesus spoke are, are found in the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. But in reality, if a person finds himself at the great white throne judgment, the only thing he's going to be judged on is his belief or unbelief. And the fact that he has rejected the only begotten Son of God. So that's, that's the great white throne judgment. Don't, don't mistake this, what Paul's talking about in 10 for that. That's not what he's talking about. Here it's the Bema seat of Christ. And it's really been likened unto the judges of the Olympics at that time. Those who had won races would come before the Bema seat. And the judge would begin to hand out the crowns that they would give to them. And they were you know, made out of laurel or you know, olive branches, and, you know, they would, you know, be, depending upon how they finished, first, second, or last. And, of course, today, you know, the Olympics, when we watch those, they use bronze, gold, and silver, and, and those type of things, which are a little more expensive than <laughs> wreaths that they would give out to the guys in the first century. But in 1 Corinthians, remember Paul was talking, and he told us there in chapter 9, he said that those that run, you know, they run to receive a corruptible crown. And that's what he was talking about, those laurel wreaths. But when we run, he says, our crown is incorruptible. They ran for something that's going to perish. We run for something that will never perish. Our crown will never perish. But it will be at the beam of seat of Christ that the works that we do do in the name of Christ will be judged. And often when you teach grace and you teach the doctrines of grace, people often misunderstand that works are not a part of it. Well, they're not a part of it when it comes to salvation. But the Bible says that we are created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So works, the things that we do, they're a part of it. They're a natural part of it, though. Those things come naturally to those who have been born again. I would no more have to tell you to do something for Jesus than, I, than anything if you're genuinely born again. Because it is him that doeth the works. He will do them through you. It's just, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that more here in a minute. But it's something that is just natural in a very supernatural way if you can get your fingers around that. Because if you teach works as a means of holiness or sanctification, then it's easy to fool people and to think that if I just do something in the name of Christ, you see, then somehow that makes me a Christian, that makes me holy, that makes me sanctified. Nothing could be further from the truth. So this judgment seat that we all as believers will stand before is going to judge those things that we have done in the name of Christ of what sort they are. 
One of the things in the church today, I think, that bothers me, and maybe it bothers some others too, is it's been given over to philanthropy. And there are many things and many programs and those type of things that are done in the name of Christ that I really wonder sometimes if they aren't done in other motivations, you know. I heard Pastor Chuck say one time that certain programs really need to be allowed to die a natural death because they're man-made. You know, when God does something, it is something that he supplies and he guides in. I don't have to whip the sheep to do it, you see. One of my favorite stories is the radio station WTLL. Uh, that we had. I mean, it was nothing that we had anticipated or even planned. But through circumstances only God could have done. He provided without any fundraising, without any of that stuff that went on. We didn't have to even mention it. And the radio station is still pumping out the gospel to this day when you go into that area of, of Muskingum County. And I'm thankful for that because it's a teaching station and the Word of God is being taught 24-7. It's those type of things. Those things are done by God and they're only wrought by God. But those things which have been done in the name of Christ, which will prove, as Paul talked about, to be wood, hay, or stubble, they're going to be burned, he says. And that person, whoever has done them, in, in, in whatever other motivation other than Christ, will suffer loss, Paul said, howbeit they themselves will be saved. But they won't receive anything for it. Those things that do survive the trial of fire, those things which were done truly out of a motivation to glorify Jesus Christ, will be rewarded. This is why I've always warned everyone, especially myself, I have to be careful. What is your motivation? Now, I heard John Corson, who I greatly love and respect. I heard John say one time, just don't, don't worry about what your motivation is, just do it. Because if you, if you worry about your motivation too much, you probably won't do anything. <laughs> Maybe it's true. But I do, I am concerned about it. I'm concerned about it in myself. I want to make sure that my motivation is strictly about Christ and not about me getting the glory for anything. Too often, things, you know, I, I don't remember who the quote was from, but I liked it. He said, more things would get done if we didn't really care who got the glory. And there's truth in that. But we do want Christ to have the glory in everything because he deserves the preeminence in our life and in everything that we do. You know, whatever we do, the Bible tells us, do it all to the glory of God the Father and, and, and to Jesus Christ. Turn with me, if you will, for just a moment in Matthew chapter 6. And just to kind of, you know, drive this point home. In Matthew 6, this is in verses 1 and 2. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. He said, take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms... Do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues. Now, back at that time, when they would go into the temple, you know, there was a box, a big coffer there that they would use to gather the offerings. And, 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 and of course, those offerings, a lot of them were for the poor. And they used it for benevolence and those type of things. But those hypocrites, as Jesus said, who were wealthy, the ones who had money, you see, they would often hire somebody, a trumpeter, who literally would go in before them blowing a trumpet. As they walked in, they would walk in, they would have their offering in a bag, but they would hold it high above their head so everybody could see it. And they would, you know, on their way, the trumpet would blow and they would throw their money in the, and everybody would applaud. Oh, ain't he holy, you see. Jesus called them hypocrites. He said, don't do that. He said, they even do it in the streets as they want to have glory of men. Verily, he said, I say unto you, they have their reward. That's it. That little bit of applause that you got is all you can expect. Once again, our works are going to be judged of what sort they are. 
In other words, what was the motivation behind them? Remember, it was Jesus who illustrated this very principle in how we pray or give or mortify the deeds of the flesh. In my years of ministry, when it comes to the issue of prayer, I have learned not to put any stock, and hear me out on this, in people who are eloquent in prayer. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. And if, you, if you're good at it, great. But so often people can have great lofty prayers, you see. And yet at the same time, they're praying because they like to hear people say, oh, you're such a blessing when you pray, you know. And it really robs them, I think, of the blessing that they could have had. Because anytime we do something for the approval of man, for the approval of anybody around you, you're, you're losing. I, I've told you this story, but for the sake of reiterating it, you know, we had the cafe at Calvary Chapel. It was very successful, and it was packed every Friday. And, and for, you know, 20 or 30 different churches would be represented there, and people just having a good time of fellowship, just enjoying themselves. It was a blessing, live music, the whole nine yards. But, but the Lord was being glorified in it. And I remember sitting there one night, and, and the place was loaded, and I look over, and we, you know, we had those big, like at McDonald's, you know, those trash bin things with the holes in the top, and people would, the trash was literally coming out, and of course, my deacons, the first thing I thought was, where's them deacons at? <laughs> and they were, they, so I, I got up, because I saw a need, I was going to fill a need, I went over there, I opened it up, it was no big deal, pulled the trash can, I'm stuffing it down, and I'm going to just change the bag. And I heard this out of one of the people who I did not know. That's Pastor Doug. He's taking the trash out. Wow. And all of a sudden, it was like, you know, I went from doing (laughs) what was simply necessary to like, I felt like I had to, I don't know, like I had to look holy while I was doing it. Do you understand what I'm saying? It just robbed me from any reward I would have got because all of a sudden I was conscious of what I was doing. Does that make any sense? That's, Jesus said, don't do your alms before men to be seen in them. Sometimes we can trip a person by giving them accolades when they didn't really seek that accolade. Do you understand what I'm saying? And all of a sudden, their attention is on their, what they're doing and how that appears to people than it is on the fact that they're just seeing a need and filling a need. But this is what Jesus was talking about. We don't want to seek man's approval. It's only God's approval that we need to be careful about. Personally, and, and, and we were talking about prayer. I'm not a very eloquent prayer. I never have been. And I thank God for the gift of tongues when it comes to that. But I'm just not eloquent in that. But when I do pray, I'm not really concerned whether anybody likes it or not, to be honest with you, because it's not them I'm praying to. It's the Lord that I'm praying to. And and that should be our mindset. You know, Jesus talked about going into your closet. He said, when you pray, you know, go to your Father, which sees in secret, And your Father, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. So it's those closet prayers, if you will. And I mean, in the Jewish community, of course, we think of that as a a talus. And when he used the word cloth, we we see that as a a prayer cloth. And and when, when, of course, it was translated closet, and that's, that's okay. But it was just, and even to this day, when you see the elder Jews uh, especially up against the, the wailing wall, you'll see them. They don't show them most of the time, but off to the side, you'll see these old men. They'll actually be sitting on the ground. They'll take their prayer show, and they'll literally cover their whole body, and they just sit in there and pray. And that's kind of the prayer club. But it's those silent prayers unto God, I think, that the Lord hears the most because so often these guys would stand in the streets, and they would stand up in their lofty prayers, you see, and, 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 but really just to be seen of men. Jesus said, don't do that. You know, don't do that. You know, you have your reward. That's it. That's all you get. I guess it really boils down to what kind of reward do you want? You know, what, is, what are you seeking? I remember one time, this was years ago. It's not in my notes, but I'll just give it to you. It just reminded me of it. You know, I was a young Christian. I had really just got serious about my walk with the Lord. Now I got saved when I was 13, but this was when I was 20-some years. I really got serious, and the Lord just got a hold of me. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I was on fire for Christ. But I had been playing in a band. I'd just come back from Nashville. It was, and I had made a lot of people unhappy. <laughs> and 
My one friend who is serving the Lord now, and he's in Vegas, and, but we played together for years. I remember he was a young pup, and it, but he had just given his life to the Lord, but yet, you know, he wasn't really quite that on fire yet. But he, I remember him coming to me, and, and he says, well, I just don't understand you. He goes, how much reward do you want? That was his question, because he, in his mind, that's why I was doing everything, which it really wasn't. It wasn't even... It really wasn't even in my mind thinking at that time, you know, like I was doing stuff to get rewarded. But here was my answer. I said, I want it all. I want everything that the Lord has for me. If, if, if what I'm doing in the name of Christ draws me a reward, because at that time I couldn't have gave you any scripture to back it up. I said, but if that's, if that's what, if, if I get something for it, well, I'll take whatever the Lord wants to give me. Because I know whatever he wants to give me will be good. You know, so I wanted it, you know. But so often that is people's mindset it's too easy to do things to draw attention to yourself i mean it just it, it is some people do it with just the way they dress you ever seen somebody the way they dress you know this they want it like they want to draw attention to themselves this is don't take offenses this is one of the problems i have with the amish community and, and also with the mennonites and those people because in their mind of course they do it because of unification you know it's a unity of dress and you know everybody's alike but the fact is is when you come out in the public you stand out like a sore thumb now you really stand out and you, you notice that, you know it, it, it's it just makes them look in public in a normal public setting it makes them look like they're standing way out outside of anything. So I don't know. It, it's just strange. But it's too easy to do that. So we just don't want to do that. But the Lord knows, you know, some people do things, you know, they, just to be seen and some people don't. But our works will be judged, he says, by the motivation with which they were wrought. So do you want a, the applause of men or a crown from the Lord? And I think that the crown from the Lord has more enduring purposes. Look at verse 11. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also made manifest in your conscience. So some of your Bibles translate the word terror here, fear. The fact is the word terror is more accurate. It actually means to put in fear, to put to fear, uh, or to have exceeding fear. So Paul said that it is a fearful thing, if you remember in Hebrews 10.31, to fall into the hands of a living God. He's talking about the issue of judgment. Of course, he's talking about the judgment seat of Christ. But it is a fearful thing. All believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is the mercy seat. But in contrast, all unbelievers will stand before the great white throne. And that is something which they should be terrified of. And unfortunately, not many are. It should be our desire, as it is God's, to see all men avoid the great white throne judgment. I've heard people tell me, you know, well, you know, I'll just wait before I'm before the throne. And I said, well, if you wait then, it's going to be a bad day. Because once you're there, there's no hope. Judgment is already made, you see. But some people have it in their mind. But it's going to be a terrible thing. You know, Paul says, knowing that, and this is the part that I've been waiting to get to, Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Hmm. There's been a, this false meme, and you've heard it before, I'm sure you have. It's been around for years, and it says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now that sounds spiritual. That sounds good. But it's so unscriptural, it isn't even funny. In contrast to that meme, Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We persuade them. According to the dictionary, the word persuade means to cause someone to do something through reasoning and argument. Today we're living in a time when people are scared to death to argue or to reason with somebody about the issues of, of their eternity. And that's sad because eternity is a long time to be wrong. And yet we hold back. So often we allow people to be around us at work or at school or at play, whatever that case may be. And we, we don't even challenge them or argue with them to persuade them to give their life or to escape the wrath that is to come. 
You know, you guys have heard of Penn and Teller. You've probably heard me mention, you know, Penn, the big guy, you know. He's got a, there's a, there's a blurb of his on YouTube where he talked about this young man who came up to him after one of his shows and the kid told him how much he loved him and as far as his, you know, being a magician and he just really appreciated his, his art. But then he said, you know, I, I care about you so much, I want to give you something. And he, and he put this New Testament into his hand. And he says, look, you know, I, I just don't want to see you go to hell, you know. And, and Penn is, a, is an avowed atheist. And he said, you know, any other time I wouldn't tolerate that. But this guy seems so sincere. And he says, you know, the fact is, he said, if, if you really believe that there's a heaven to be had and a hell to be shunned, if you really believe that, Here's what Penn said. He said, how much would you have to hate somebody not to tell them? See, even he gets it, and he's still an atheist, but at least he understands. Because he said, if I were a Christian, I would be telling everybody if I really believed it. Because he said, I have nothing. He, said, he calls it proselytizing, which is funny, I think. He says, I'd be, I'd be proselytizing everybody. Well, sure you would. You would spread that word. Why? Because if you really believed it, if you knew it was true. And those who are born again should know that it's absolute truth. The word of God is fact. If you're genuinely born again by the spirit of God and the love of God is dwelling in you, how could you hate someone enough not to try to persuade them to receive the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? How could that happen? Jesus said, no man, when he lights a candle, puts it in a secret place, neither under a bushel. Luke eleven thirty three. 33. I would emphasize, he says, no man. No man does that. And no man who is genuinely born again never shares his faith. That doesn't happen. Listen, God, you know, I realize that there are people who have the gift of evangelism. I understand that. But those guys, if you've looked around, are far and few between. How many Billy Grahams have there been? There's only one. And even down through church history, it's a handful of those guys. Now it's Greg Laurie who kind of took over for him. But preaching the gospel, the great commission has been given to each and every one of us. That's a get-to, gang. That's a privilege. It's not a have-to. It's a get-to. But if the Holy Spirit is the one directing us, it will happen. Share your faith. This is, you know, this is what we are called to do. You know, Jesus said, no man hides it. And I do believe that if you think it's possible that you can be an incognito Christian, Paul's going to tell us in chapter, I think it's 13 when we get down to it, he's going to tell the Corinthians, search yourselves, brethren, whether you even be in the faith. There's a time when we need to question because the, 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 the common sense thing is that healthy sheep reproduce. They just do. If your relationship with Christ is healthy, if it's healthy, if you put a male and a female and a pen together, a sheep, you're going to produce a lamb. It's going to happen. And when you have sheep of the pasture of Jesus Christ that are well-loved and well-fed, they will reproduce. It just happens. Look at verse 12. He says, For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you an, an occasion to glory on our behalf that we, you may have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. And as you well know, Paul had his detractors. People who questioned his apostleship, his authority. They thought he was mean. They, they thought he was crazy. They thought he was harsh. They believed he was out of his mind. This is what they said about him. So they had begun to say, well, you know, Paul's beside himself. He's crazy. He doesn't even know what he's saying. Thus, Paul says here that we commend not ourselves again unto you. Remember, Paul didn't need letters of commendation. He said that the ones that he had led to Christ, the people that he ministered to, they were his letters of commendation. It was the proof of his ministry, you see. In order to arm his followers against his detractors, Paul was simply giving them tools to answer those who had brought up crazy accusations against him. He said of those detractors that they were the type who glory in appearance and not in heart. 
1 Samuel 16, 7, you can just write it down. I'm just going to read it for you. He said, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. See, God knows. You know, all things are naked and open to the eyes with whom we have to do. He knows all things, and he doesn't look at the stature of men. He puts no stock in those things, and neither should we. The earmarks of carnality and immaturity as a Christian is to glory in appearance instead of the heart. Happens way too often, my friends, and it shouldn't. Verse 13, for whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. To be beside yourself meant to be crazy. It meant that you were talking to yourself is what it meant. You remember Paul had been accused of being Meshuggah before. That's Yiddish for crazy. And you remember when he was before Agrippa and Festus, he said, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning hath made thee mad. Why? Because Paul simply quoted Scripture. He understood where he was at. He was on fire for the Lord. And he wasn't just on fire for the Lord. Paul was on fire with the Word of God. And Paul realized that it applied not only to him, but to everybody. And so he freely began. And sometimes he would begin to preach. And his learning would astound people who don't understand the Scriptures. And of course, these were heathens who accused him of being crazy. But those who love the Lord understood. No doubt. Peter said Paul spoke of some things which are hard to be understood, which the unlearned and the unstable twist and distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. But Paul knew a lot. You know, but he just simply was on fire. He loved it. And, but people mistakenly thought he was crazy. Look at verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that they which should live, not henceforth should live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. I like the word constraints. Paul says, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. The word in the Greek means to be in a press. If you take it all the way back, it means to be in a cattle press. If you know what a cattle press is, it's, it's like this little... They run cattle through it, and it just holds that cow while they administer medications and stuff to them and to take care of them. But Paul says, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. It's, this is what is holding me on the path of evangelism. This is what motivates me. And he goes right back to the cross. You know, he's talking about it because he died for one, therefore everyone must have been dead. Everybody was dead in sin. Because prior to Christ, that's the way mankind is. He's dead in sin and trespasses. Matter of fact, he said in Ephesians 2, 1, And you hath he quickened, that is, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. Also in Colossians 2, 13, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. And so we are made alive. You know, when we come into this world, we are body, soul, and spirit. And really, that spirit is dead. And so we walk according to the body, according to the flesh, the desires of the flesh. But when we're born again, then our spirit is made alive, and then we become spirit, soul, and body. And so now we walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. We're led by the spirit and not by just the things that we want to do according to our body. And... Of course, unless you think Paul was only talking about believers, you look at John uh, in 1 John 2, 2. He says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. It's important, I think, that we all understand that all men outside of Jesus Christ are dead in trespasses and sin. They have no capacity to make a decent decision in life. They just don't. But they're dead spiritually. Thus Paul says, you hath he quickened. That is, he made alive. 
It's also important, I think, to understand that just because Jesus died for the whole world, it does not make the whole world saved, as some, you know, universalists want to believe. And I think in reality, when you look at this, it's, in, in my humble opinion, I think that this is the very definition of limited atonement. Because some people have a hard time with limited atonement. But in reality, all it means is that the atonement of Christ is limited only to those who believe. Now, it can be applicable to all because it was. When he died on Christ, it was for the whole world. Every sin was forgiven on the cross. But it doesn't make everyone saved because not all believe. You have to believe. In Galatians 5, verse 4. Of course, Paul was dealing with the issue of Judaizers, but I think it's applicable to what we're talking about. He says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. You see, whether you're trying to work your way to heaven or whether you're just an unbeliever, Christ is of no effect. There is no propitiation for you, those who are trying to do it some other way or don't care at all. Christ is of no effect, Paul says. So this is where the universalists fail to understand that though Christ did die for all, which he did, the sins of the whole world, yet it doesn't affect the whole world. It has to be coupled with belief. It has to be coupled with faith in order for it to be applicable to anybody. And so once we do that, once we become born again, then that self-centered life is replaced by a life that is centered on Christ. Paul said that because Jesus died for all, it is imperative that those who have been made alive, whose spirit has been quickened by the faith in Christ, no longer live unto themselves, but live unto him. I don't understand people. I, have to have, I do have a hard time with it when I deal with people whose life circles around church. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with church. But when that is your sole experience, when it should be Jesus, you see, and then we come together as a collective to gather the church, which is the believers, and to worship Christ as a collective, that's great. But some people, their only experience in Christianity is church. And how often do you hear the word community? I, I'm getting to where I detest that word. Why? Because people want to be a part of something. I understand that. Why do you think there are fraternities? Fraternal orders. You realize how many fraternities there are? How many fraternal orders? Eagles Club, Elks Club. I couldn't name them all. Knights of Columbus. I, why? Because men want to belong to something. You know? They want to be a part of something. They want to gather together. They don't care what it's about. And so often they don't even care if it's even in a church setting. Listen. When a person's born again, and Christ becomes the center of our life, which he will, then that is all consuming because our God is a consuming fire. And we are consumed with Jesus Christ and I'm gladly consumed by him. I wake up thinking about him. I go to sleep thinking about him. During my day, I'm talking about him. It's not because I'm a preacher. It's because I'm saved. Being a preacher is just something happens to be my calling. But it's because I'm saved. I don't have the daytime Doug and the nighttime Doug, the Sunday Doug and the weekday Doug. I don't have that. There's no such thing. What you see is what you get. You come to my house, guess what we're going to talk about? We're going to talk about the Lord. Now granted, we might say, hey, you know, the weather's kind of bad. Yeah, I know, but the Lord is in control. And speaking of that... <laughs> <laughs> that's going to lead to something. Just, I'll guarantee you, we're going to be talking about the Lord. But that's the experience, I believe, of every born-again believer. I think that we move from that. But, you know, Paul says here that those who have been affected by that, those who have been affected by the propitiation of Christ, 
they have moved from that self-centered life to now living unto Christ and making him the center of their life. Look at verse 16. He says, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Basically what Paul is saying here is that there was a time when he knew all men, including Christ, merely in the flesh. And did not really see them as eternal or spiritual. They had no eternal value. But now, once he came to Christ, that's all he saw was their eternal destination and the spiritual aspect of Christ. You know, before he thought Christ, he thought Jesus was just a leader of a cult group. And that's why he persecuted the church, because he thought Jesus was deviating from some crazy Judaism and, and he was going to fix that. But that, you know, when Jesus plucked him off of that horse on the road to Damascus and chose him, and, and, and showed him who he was, that all changed. That all changed. Now Paul saw the spiritual nature of not only men, but also of Christ himself. Therefore, he says in verse 17, remember, therefore means this is the culmination of everything he has just said, based on everything he's just talked about. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This has been my life verse ever since I was born again. I want you to notice that there's two words here, are and are, that's used together. It's a present tense word. Some of your Bibles may translate that different. I'm here to tell you that's wrong. This is correct. This is what the Textus Receptus teaches, and it is instantaneous. This is what George Whitfield and Charles Wesley argued about. Was salvation instantaneous? And the Bible would say yes. The problem with John Wesley was John Wesley thought what was being taught was that it was sanctification. Well, no doubt when it's imputed to you, that's instantaneous, but there's also progressive. We understand, grow ye therefore in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a whole other thing. But when a man's born again, it's, it's, the, like, it's instantaneous. I know that every person I've ever talked to, when you ask them, what is your salvation experience? Once the scales have fallen from the eyes, and I would argue that that's your moment of salvation. You know, Paul on the, on the road to Damascus, once the Lord brought him... He said it was like great scales had fallen from his eyes. He didn't say literally they were. He said it was like that. Why? Because all of a sudden the things that he couldn't see before, he saw. And what was that that he saw? Here's what I believe. I think what Paul saw was his own wretchedness. I think what Paul saw was his own religiosity. And how he had persecuted the church. And how the things that he had done, he saw how deviant he really was. And how gracious the Lord really was. And that changed because at that moment, once you realize that, it's just like David, when Nathan came to David, and he, you know, David had done grievous things. He had done murder and, you know, he was a fornicator and adulterer. He had done all kinds of things. He just kept covering up his sin, covering up his sin. And finally, the Lord sends Nathan to him and he tells him that story of the little ewe lamb and how the, the neighbor took it and, and, and abused it and slaughtered it. And David was so incensed by that sin, he said, this man shall surely be put to death. And Nathan said, thou art the man. The first words from David's mouth when he finally realized the depths of his own sin was, I have sinned against the Lord. When a man is born again, he comes to that realization that he has sinned against the Lord. This is what's not being preached, my friends, anymore. The problem is what's being preached now is come as you are and stay as you are. That's not the gospel. See, when a person genuinely comes to Christ, it's not what you do after that. It's what the Holy Ghost does through you after that. You can't help it. The scales will fall. You will change. Oh, you're going to grow in Christ. I'm not saying that because the Bible teaches that. But that there's going to be this instantaneous, all of a sudden you will hear things differently. You will see things differently. You will 
be different. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That was my experience. It was my wife's experience. It was so many people's experience. You just saw it different. And it didn't take months. It didn't take years. It took right then and there. Now we grow, and that took years, but that first experience with Christ of coming to him and confessing that sin and realizing all that he's done in the depths of your own, that was instantaneous. It was those scales that fell from your eyes. That's when you were born again. And that's when the Lord really begins to get a hold of a man and begins to really use him. So often, people will just have a profession, you see. I've seen people climb to the pulpit. So often, we'll, we'll take anybody who wants to make a profession of faith and we'll stick them up and let them give a big testimony behind the, the pulpit, you see, only to hear about them wallowing in perdition two weeks later or whatever. That's sad because it just doesn't happen when a person is genuinely born again. In 1 John, and I want to challenge you to go back and read these things, John uses a term that I think is interesting. He says, he that saith, and he says this over and over again. I'll just give you a few in 1 John 2, 4. Just write them down. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That's a pretty straightforward statement. There's no explanation needed. I don't need to expositorily, you know, talk about that. Why? Because it says what it means. 1 John 2, 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk. The word ought means should and would is what it actually means. You will walk even as he walked. 1 John 4, 20. If a man say I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Those are rhetorical questions because they're self-evident, you see. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Over and over you see it. John said that if you say one thing, and yet your life is exhibiting the opposite. If you say you are in Christ and abiding in Jesus, yet you are living after the flesh, you're a liar. You're a liar. This is what John says, not Doug Copen. It's the word of God. Men can make great professions, but all too often their lives are not a reflective of that profession. John said that if you say that you have no sin, you're self-deceived. Self-deception is a scary thing. I've seen too many people do it. Your profession of Christ is empty if that's what it is. I heard a man explain it one time. It's like your profession and your witness are two tracks and they ought to be parallel. And too often, our witness, which is the way that we show it unto Christ, and our profession are not. But why is that? See, I don't think that you can really do both. I think that if you're genuinely born again, your witness will back up what your profession is. Why? Because it's not you doing it. It's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit genuinely is empowering a man... It's he that's going to do the works, not you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul warned us that in the last days, which I personally believe we're seeing, that they would come those preaching a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And he said, from such turn away. Listen, gang, I'm here to tell you that the power of the Holy Spirit is extraordinary. Not just in transformation, but also in reformation and also in healing and also in raising the dead and, and, and deliverance, whatever that thing might be, he's still doing it. You don't need a 12-step program. You need a one-step program, walk to the cross, fall on your face, and ask for the help of the Holy Ghost. He still delivers. 
He still empowers. He still supplies. He still guides. He still is the one who walks alongside. He is still the comforter. And he is healing the sick. He is healing those who are lost. It is him. He's still doing it. I refuse to give in to those who would say, oh, but Doug, there's a 12-step program. I don't, you know, listen, let me me rail for a moment as a man. Alcoholics Anonymous preaches that God is a person, place, or thing. My friends, God is not a person, place, or thing. He is a him, and he is the only one with whom we have to do. And he is the one who calls the shots and shall the thing form say to him who formed it, why hast thou made me thus? I think not. He loves you, cares for you, gave his only begotten son for you. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. You need deliverance, he'll deliver you. I've known too many people. The guy that comes to my mind right now, it's not in my notes, is Mike McIntosh. Read on him. Pastors, a huge Calvary chapel in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. Amazing testimony. This was a guy who had schizophrenia. He was certifiably, in his, out of his words, he was insane. He literally was crazy. We're going to talk about they called Paul crazy. He was actually crazy, according to the doctors. And he showed up at this little white chapel in Costa Mesa one Sunday because people had been talking about this guy who simply believed the word of God and believed that the Holy Spirit, he said, I walked into that place, I went to the cross, and God healed me. And he has been, you know, he's been a, a, an enormous pastor and evangelist, Mike McIntosh, ever since. That's been probably 40-some years ago. And he's still preaching, he's still teaching. He still does those things. The Holy Spirit still does those things. But it's him that does it. We don't have to really do anything if we just take our hands off to allow him to do it. You got something you need to get rid of, take it to the Holy Spirit. Don't try going up some other way. Trust in the Lord. I've had people who live totally the opposite of what they profess. And they say, but Doug, I pray. If I had a nickel every time I heard somebody who was living total contrary to what they said they believed and yet told me they pray, I'd be a rich man. I always tell them, well, then you need to read Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquity has separated you between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not here. Sin has a problem with it, gang. And those who do not know the Lord, the first prayer that God will hear from that one is a prayer of repentance. It's like putting that, 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 that coin in, in the machine to connect the phone. We come to Christ on his terms and through Jesus Christ. Change your mind. That's what the word repent means. Change your mind about what it is that you think that you've done. Confess your wretchedness before Christ and receive what it is that he's done for you. Then everything changes. Then the Holy Spirit comes in and it all becomes new. Look at verse 17. He says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God Verse 18, who hath reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, Be ye reconciled. The word reconciliation means making peace. God was in Christ on the cross reconciling the world unto himself. He and I love the fact he says he was not imputing their sins. He wasn't holding them against us. He wasn't counting them. But in fact, gang, there was a double imputation that happened that day on Calvary. Our sins was imputed to Christ and his righteousness was imputed to us. So those of us who have believed the gospel, who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
That is exactly what happens. You are righteous. You are all that Christ has called you to be. And you are led by the Spirit. And you are delivered. You are healed. You're all those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. But there are those who have not received that. They have not come to grips with their own wretchedness. They have not. And some of them are sitting in churches. And they think because they go to church or because they've been baptized that that's what makes them saved. And it is not. We have the word of reconciliation. We get to tell people you can be reconciled to God through Christ. Those of us who have been the recipients of his righteousness, God has committed unto us this word. Because we have, he's given us that word. He has made us ambassadors for Christ. So we become the spokesman for Jesus. Paul said, as though Christ did beseech us by us, we pray you in Christ did be reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. My friends, listen to me. Whether you're riding in a car, whether you're sitting at home, whatever the case may be, if you are suffering because of your sin and you're the only one and God is the one who knows that, I encourage you, as Paul has said, we beseech you, be reconciled to Christ. You need healing. It is only found in the Holy Spirit. You need deliverance from drugs, alcohol, whatever that thing might be. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And it will be if you simply believe what has been preached as far as what Christ has witnessed to us and what he's done for us. So just believe and receive. I, I, I would encourage you to simply confess your sins to Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's promised to all who believe. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, we ask that you would touch those, Lord Father, who have been listening. And Lord Father, you would minister to them and if they need, Lord Father, to repent, I pray that you would help to change their mind, help their unbelief, Lord, that they might come to know personally Jesus Christ and be truly transformed by the renewing of their mind. We love you so much. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.